please turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, thus says the word of the Lord. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But for whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Well, the biblical message of salvation comes to us in paradoxical terms. Salvation is by Grace alone. It's altogether free to receive it. But at the same time, it costs you everything. Our Lord's invitation to discipleship comes with his demand that you yield all that you have, all that you desire, all that you aspire to, and all that you are to all that he is and all that he promises. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. It was purchased at the expense of the death of Christ. And when you really receive God's grace in Christ, it becomes to you a treasure that eclipses every other thing you value. It's a treasure hid in a field. And when you find it for the joy of the discovery, you sell all that you have to acquire that field. It's the pearl of great price for the sake of which you willingly relinquish everything over the joy of acquiring it. It's worth plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand for the sake of it. The grace of God through the gospel is of superior worth to every object of esteem in this world. And because of that, the cost of discipleship, the weight of the cross that Christ places on our shoulders, is rightfully appraised by the renewed mind, not as a grievance, but as a privilege. Well, leading up to this passage, as we saw last Lord's Day, Peter had confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus predicted his suffering and death, which was contrary to what every Jew, as far as we can tell, in the second temple believed about what would happen to the Messiah, including the disciples. And so Peter took him aside and reproved him. But then Jesus rebuked him by exposing the satanic impulse behind Peter's well-intentioned advice. It does not suffice only to confess the person of Christ as the Son of God. 
but true faith must apprehend his atoning blood for sinners. Christianity is crucicentric, centered on the cross. But then Jesus takes us a step further and reveals that true discipleship is cruciform, that is, shaped by, patterned after, and conformed to the cross. One of the problems with popular Christian thinking today is that the gospel has been cheapened. Jesus is presented as a notion you accept instead of a Lord and Master and Rabbi to whose yoke you must submit. It has been taught that you receive salvation simply when you accept Jesus as your Savior and that discipleship is thus an optional additional step only for those who desire to be more, be more committed. But biblically, there is no such thing as a believer in Christ who is not a disciple of Christ. In the language of Mark's gospel, to believe the gospel is to follow Jesus. That's a, that's a metaphor. To follow him is to believe in him. And following him means being his disciple, his learner, his pupil, and a practitioner who observes all things whatsoever he has commanded. And so when the Lord says in verse 34, whoever desires to come after me, he's not just talking about how true believers can know a greater degree of surrender He's not just talking about how those who are already believers can attain to a fuller expression of the so-called deeper Christian life. In fact, the sentence is in Greek, what grammarians call a first-class conditional statement. Greek scholar Daniel Wallace explains. He says a first-class condition assumes the truth of the assertion for the sake of argument. It does not mean that the, that the speaker necessarily believes it to be true. In other words, Jesus doesn't necessarily believe that all who express a desire to follow him actually want to truly follow him on his terms. To be a follower of Christ, a, a genuine believer in him, means that one will demonstrate the validity of this desire by voluntarily embracing the practical implications of the cross in their life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him, Come and die. Martin Luther said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing of him. Jonathan Edwards said, It is not by telling people about ourselves that we demonstrate our Christianity. Words are cheap. It is by costly, self-denying Christian practice that we show the reality of our faith. That's exactly what Jesus is now revealing at this juncture in the gospel story. He's saying, confession of who I am as the Christ, yes, it's foundational. 
But mere words aren't enough. Words can be cheap. You show the genuineness of your confession of me by self-denial for my sake and by dying to all that you are and identifying with all that I am. So the gospel slays you. The gospel empties you. The gospel annihilates you so that you can be made alive and be filled with Christ and be resurrected in his image. And so the cost of discipleship is, according to the words of our text, in the first place, death to self. Death to self. Verse 34. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the first mention of the cross or a cross in Mark's gospel. The disciples at this time couldn't imagine that Jesus would literally be crucified. But they did know what bearing a cross meant. They had seen it many times. Because the Romans crucified their victims at crossroads of heavy traffic to make a public spectacle and example out of the enemies of Rome. And the disciples knew that whenever you saw a man carrying a cross, one thing about that man was certain. His life was over. That was the end of him. Crucifixion. It was invented by the Persians about three to 400 B.C. They would impale their enemies on stakes set in an upright position. It was then adopted by the Greeks, Seleucids, and Carthaginians, and then inherited by the Romans. The Romans, of course, perfected crucifixion to inflict maximum torture and humiliation, the most amount of suffering possible in the amount of time that the victim was suffering. The Romans, contrary to the Persians, used a T-shaped cross consisting of two beams. The upright stake was called the palace, or stipes, and it would be fixed at the site of the crucifixion. The horizontal beam was called the patibulum, and it was fastened with ropes to the shoulders of the victim who had to carry it to the stipes where he would be executed. And at that time, both beams would be fastened together and the victim would be impaled to it with stakes driven through his wrists and through his ankles. He would die an excruciating death. In fact, our English word excruciating is an adjective that comes from the word for cross, deriving from the Latin. Excruciating pain is reminiscent, that language reminiscent to the cross. And so they would die through physical trauma and blood loss and ultimately asphyxiation, that is, suffocation. And this is the image. This is the image of the Christian life. This is the image of discipleship that Jesus employs to describe what it means to truly confess and follow him. He's not just talking about self-discipline or self-abnegation. 
but total self-annihilation. And this, of course, may be literal in the case of some, like those who suffer martyrdom, but it is foremost a metaphor describing not how we literally die, but how we are to live in our daily conduct. Hence Luke 9.23, in the parallel text, Jesus adds this word, daily. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Thus, conversion, whereby we turn from ourselves, is to come to expression by a daily turning from ourselves, even a daily renunciation of self. So Jesus says, let him deny himself. I find it interesting that in every culture throughout time and history, every single culture has its own strengths and weaknesses. And Bible interpreters in each culture, if you read them, you'll find that they tend to read their cultural prejudices and assumptions into their interpretations of the text. And one of our weaknesses in American culture is that we love our affluence and our comfort. And so when we come to this passage, our impulse is to tone down or soften the Lord's words here. We trivialize what self-denial entails. To give you an example, Matthew Kelly, he runs a ministry called Dynamic Catholic. He's a New York Times best-selling author, very influential. And he teaches on this text and he applies it to Lent. And he says, quote, Part of the genius of Lent is that it invites us to take another look at self-denial. He writes, you can't have a great marriage. You can't be a great parent. You can't be successful in sport. You can't be successful at work, in business, in your career, or in your personal finances unless you are willing to deny yourself. He says we can't be successful in our health and well-being unless we are willing to deny ourselves. And then he writes, you want to have a Coke. You're craving a Coke. But instead, you have a glass of water. Nobody sees that. Nobody knows about that. But in that small self-denial, you're actually taking possession of yourself. And the truth is, we only really develop that self-possession through self-denial. End quote. Well, is that, is that really what Jesus is teaching? Is that really it? Say no to the Coca-Cola. Is he a self-help guru, a psychologist aiming for your self-improvement, prosperity, and personal success? Kelly teaches, deny yourself, and that apparently only during Lent, by the way, not, not for the rest of the year. Deny yourself in order to take possession of yourself. That's what he teaches. But Jesus teaches, deny yourself, annihilate your total self, die to yourself so you can experience eternal life with God. Verse 23, let him deny himself. That's not, that's not about giving up your coconut cream pie. 
It's about surrendering yourself to God as a living sacrifice to yield your whole being to the claims of Christ and the implications of the gospel over your life. That's what it's about. In fact, the word Jesus uses in the original, or let him deny himself, that verb deny, deny himself, it's found 11 times in the New Testament. To deny oneself means renunciation of any association with the person that is denied. The words used eight times in the Synoptic Gospels, eight times to refer to Peter's denial of Christ. What was Peter saying about Christ when he denied him? I don't know that man. I have nothing to do with that man. It was, in, in essence, a, a renouncement of who Jesus was. Denying ourselves is to renounce ourselves. It's to renounce ownership and autonomy of ourselves as we surrender ourselves to Christ. It's to say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To deny yourself is to reckon yourself, to be dead together with Christ, to be buried with him in baptism, and dead to the identity of what Paul calls your old man, your former self in the life of sin. Because you can't serve both God and idols. The idol of self needs to be supplanted by the supremacy of Christ. Many people misunderstand what this self-denial is. Self-denial, in the words of our text, is not the denial of your natural self or your physical self as an end in itself. It's not an injunction to engage in asceticism or to self-deprecate in false humiliation. We're created in God's image. We were made with natural desires that are good. You have your own unique personality, your dignity, your honor, your humanity. And we should never inflict intentional harm on ourselves or our reputation in any arbitrary way. Christian self-denial is not self-sanctioned misery. It's not self-imposed poverty in an arbitrary way, merely for the sake of these things in themselves, self-denial, it's not an end in itself, nor is it inherently virtuous. The virtue of Christian self-denial, it's virtue as a Christian, distinctively Christian discipline stems from the sanctifying work of the Spirit within us that enables us to die to the selfish impulses of sin. As a Christian virtue, self-denial is legitimized by its intention and aim, which is to cross our own will that we may do God's will in the path of revealed duty whenever our will conflicts with God's will and all that for the sake of God's glory. But what exactly are we to deny? 
specifically. But we are to deny all that disagrees with the demands of Christ's lordship. We are to deny all that contradicts the will of God for our lives. Paul puts it like this in Titus 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying, same word in the Greek, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So we are to deny all ungodliness, Paul says, and that sums it up. All that we think, say, or do, or would do that would reflect a lack of reverence or honor toward God. And in its practical bearings, this comes down to many particulars. We are to deny carnal reason as we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are to deny our own righteousness. In the words of Thomas Watson, he said we should be like a bee and not like a spider. He said the spider weaves a web out of her own body. A hypocrite would spin a web of salvation out of his own righteousness. But Paul, like the bee, he sucked salvation from the flower of Christ's righteousness. So we are to deny our own righteousness. We are to deny self-trust and carnal confidence. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Let him therefore who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We are to deny seeking our own honor and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2.6, Paul said, For we did not seek glory from men, either from you or from others. We are to deny self-conceit. So many, so many are conceited by their own wits, their abilities, their acumen. They censoriously despise others who don't measure up to their self-assessed stature. And so we are to deny that. We are also to deny many other things, like an overindulgent appetite, ease and sloth, inordinate anger, hasty and imprudent speech, and the sinful and immodest fashions of the world. We are to deny wealth and estate if Christ demands it of us. We are even to deny our families if their will crosses with the will of our Lord. And so in Luke 14, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So your whole self, with every sphere of your life, must yield to the priority of Christ. Self must be abdicated from the throne of your heart that Christ might be crowned Lord of your affections and the first love of your life. And so Jesus says here in Mark 8, 35, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Thus, if you insist on self-preservation, 
on sparing your carnal self, on retaining your egotistical will. If you resolutely retain your own ego, your own will and dreams and desires and ambitions and aspirations as your number one priority and are unwilling to yield it all to Christ for his sake and for the sake of his gospel, then you will lose your soul. That's what he's saying. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So we exchange our dying life for his living death so we can experience perennial life after death. I love what Jim Elliott said, the, the missionary martyr to the Harani people of Ecuador. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's what our Lord is saying in this text. We must die in terms of our primary allegiance to all that lies within the domain of self. But not only self, but also to the domain of the world. That's our second point. Death to the world. Verse 36. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. And you know, no saying of our Lord is more countercultural than this. We tend to live like the Epicureans of old, who were described as connoisseurs of the arts of life and live for the refinements of sensual pleasures. With them we think, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And he who dies with the most toys wins. Jesus teaches that at the end of the age, we will meet with a radical reversal. Those who live for self will die. Those who sacrifice self for him will live. The first will be last and the last first. The proud will be humbled and the humble, the meek, exalted. The rich man died and went to Hades. Lazarus died and went to paradise. Blessed are the poor. Woe to those who are rich. Blessed are those who weep. Woe to those who laugh. The structure and pecking order of our value systems is in disarray because of the idolatrous perceptions of our hearts. Chaos reigns and tempts us to esteem the thing over the maker of the thing. We think our world is right side up, but it's actually upside down. And the Lord will turn it right side up when he comes again in his kingdom. And then the value systems of men will be turned on their head. What will happen to what we esteem what we live for in that day. How will, how will your soul fare when the world goes topsy-turvy? Are we building our eternal house with wood, hay, and straw, or with gold and silver and precious stones? King Charlemagne, he had all the influence and power that the world can yield. 
he united Europe and he was crowned emperor of the Holy Roman Empire in 800 AD. And before he died, the great Charlemagne indicated that he should be placed in his tomb, seated on a throne in a royal posture. He directed that the Gospels, a codex of the Gospels, should be laid on his knees, his sword beside him, the imperial crown on his head, and the royal mantle on his shoulders. And thus he died and was buried, and his body remained for nearly two centuries. Then about 1000 AD, the tomb was opened by the emperor Otho. They found the skeleton of Charlemagne, sunken and collapsed. The skull was still wearing the crown, and the bony finger of the skeleton was pointing to a verse of scripture in the open codex on his lap. And that verse read, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? <laughs> Let that image engrave itself in your memory. Every morning when you wake up, as you go to plan your day, remember the skeleton of Europe's greatest king. As you plan your fall and winter and spring, as you plan your year, as you plan your year, your, your career, your retirement, that is, as you plan your life, may the skeleton of Charlemagne haunt your dreams and aspirations. Every time you set out, with self-centered or worldly ambition, may the image of his bony finger poke into your mind as you see him pointing to this verse. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Once you're dead and gone, it's one thing that'll matter, and that is your never-dying, precious, eternal soul. So spend your years Spend your strength, spend your time investing, not into this life, but into your everlasting future. You know, our, our Lord's lesson in spiritual economics here, that, that's what this has been called. This presses us to take spiritual inventory of our commitments and investments. It urges us to give a heavenly-minded appraisal of our every ambition of our every enterprise in this life by assessing every single thing with a view to its eternal value. What do we invest our time in? What do we spend our strength for? What do we invest our, our money and our resources into? Is it for building up the kingdom of God, for furthering the cause of the gospel, or is it merely and solely for ourselves? And so the Lord is here teaching that you can only live your days to the fullest now by operating in light of the life to come. The fullness of life is known only through your daily death in union with Christ as you allocate all to his ownership and as you embrace the experiential application of the cross to your life, know that it is in your daily death to self and in your daily death to the world, that you are storing up for yourself a greater reward in the world to come. That's implied in the words of the text. 
If you gain the world and lose your soul, then as you relinquish and renounce the world as far as the affections of your heart goes, then you gain the world to come. The measure of your self-abnegation for the cause of Christ in this life will be rewarded with a commensurate measure of remuneration in his coming kingdom according to the recompense of grace. And so, brothers and sisters, there is no loss that you suffer here for Christ's sake that will not be your gain in the world to come. And considering that this is the case, then all that betides us in the realm of our temporal existence is relatively unimportant compared to the reception that we may or may not have when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Because one day, very soon, very, very soon, the one thing that'll matter is what the Son of Man says about you. Not what you say about yourself, not merely what you confess with your lips or profess to believe, not what others say about you, what the Son of Man says about you. When the heavens roll up like a scroll, when the elements burn with a fervent heat, what the world says about you will be as far from your mind as the east is from the west. Thus to live a cross-bearing, self-denying, as a cross-bearing, self-denying disciple, to live like this means to live now with the great white throne impressed upon your mind and as you ally yourself fully with Christ to die, to self, the world, and to human opinion. Death to human opinion, that's our third point. Solemn words in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation. By the way, adulterous, that's a, that, that's a description that's taken directly from the prophets. J Jesus here is, is, is scathing our sinfulness as a fallen world by conceptualizing our sinfulness as Adultery, that is, betrayal against God. And so this is picking up from that imagery of the prophets whereby they describe idolatry as adultery. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Do you know what the implication of this is? This is following immediately on the heels of Peter's confession of Christ. It alludes back to Peter's bold confession. Do you know what it means? Your confession of Christ is going to cost you something. It might not cost us as, as much as, say, Christians in North Korea or China right now, but it will cost you whatever the public ramifications of it are if you are faithful to confess him as you ought. And if you try to escape that cost by denying what you know to be true about Christ, he's warning, you may end up purchasing peace with men at the price of your soul. 
The Lord warns us not to be ashamed of him because he knows we will be tempted to be overly agreeable and conformable to the popular opinion of this world. But the world, it is hostile to everything Jesus represents. And that hostility, it'll never go away. The world hates our law because it condemns them. They hate our gospel because it threatens their idols. They hate our Christ because he testifies of them that their works are evil. To the world, Christians are bigots, narrow-minded, judgmental, condescending, patronizing. That opinion of us isn't going to change no matter how patient, kind, or gracious we could possibly be. The world hates us because it hates the Son of Man. It hates his truth. It hates his indictment of its sin. It hates his teaching of the narrow way. It hates his, his exposure of its evil. It hates his warnings about hell. It hates his demand to take up the cross and die to self. And it hates his command to repent or perish. And so there can be no spiritual harmony or oneness between the church and the world. The church is a little flock in the midst of the world, distinct from the world itself. And the two are in cosmic conflict that will end in the dissolution of the one and the triumph of the other. And we know which one triumphs. But until then, the battle will ensue and as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, we are called to endure all the hardship, all the censure and libel and persecution that the world might throw our way. And I mean, did we really think that battering down the gates of hell wouldn't stir up the hornet's nest of the devil and his legions? Prudence would have us to count the cost to consider that in confessing Christ boldly, we have nothing to lose ultimately and everything to gain once things are put in eternal perspective. The heavenly-minded believer will regard the smile of Christ to be of greater worth than all the smiles and frowns of men combined. And so that's the cost of discipleship. Death to self, death to the world, and death to human opinion. Total self-renunciation to live solely and wholly for God. But, you might think, who would really want to do that? I've been told if you preach the gospel like that, no one will want to accept it. Come and be crucified. Come and embrace a torturous instrument of death. Come and lose yourself in Christ. No one in their natural mind will ever accept that. <laughs> That's the point. That's precisely why Jesus preached the way he did. You'll never accept it. You'll never be able to believe it, to embrace it, to love it, to live it unless a supernatural work of grace transforms you from the inside out. 
See, only those who are called of God will be minded to come. And when your king summons you to his service by the work of his spirit in the depths of your heart, then serving him in the way of the cross becomes your highest honor and your greatest privilege and your delectable duty. True self-denial, Christian self-denial, is made possible only by grace. It is internally enabled. It is voluntary and not compelled. And self-denial is practiced when the regenerate principle within us clashes against the enticements of our carnal desires and reduces them to subjection out of love for Christ. And this self-denial has come to its maturity in grace in us only when we are more content to suffer with Christ than we are to grieve him through sinful pleasure. In the 1800s, Hudson Taylor, he had spent himself for 53 years pioneering the gospel into inland China. He forsook his promising future in England to put his life in constant danger to reach the unreached. He suffered more than most. He sacrificed as much as any man possibly could for the sake of the gospel, short of martyrdom itself. But toward the end, he said, I have never sacrificed anything. There's the aged, seasoned Hudson Taylor, having spent himself and being spent in the service of the gospel. I've never sacrificed a thing. His son Howard wrote in his dad's biography, you can read this in Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, quote, I never made a sacrifice, said Hudson Taylor in later years, looking back over a life in which that element certainly was not lacking. But what he said was true, for the compensations were so real and lasting that he came to see that giving up is inevitably receiving when one's heart is dealing heart to heart with God. End quote. Taylor, in view of the conformity, his conformity to the cross of Christ, viewed in the light of the enormity of Christ's sacrifice for him, and in prospect of the eternal reward for having brought the gospel to hundreds and thousands of souls, counted his every hardship a joy and a delight. Because he was, as Hebrews 12.2 puts it, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So self-denial is motivated by having the eschatological end in view. The Son of Man is coming in his glory with his holy angels. Yes, if you deny him now, he'll deny you before his Father and the holy angels. But the flip side of that is the additional words that the other gospel accounts do indicate that he did indeed say is that he who confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father and the holy angels. And so, 
That's the great day that we need to write into our agenda. You write out your agenda, put that at the top of the list every single day. The day when you will stand before the Son of Man and see him in his glory. Write it on your agenda, stamp it on your eyeballs, and pray the Sovereign Spirit to inscribe the conscious expectation and hope and reality of that day on your heart. So the words of our text are no drudgery. Jesus is no killjoy. The message of the cost of discipleship is not bad news when it's rightfully appraised and subordinated to the good news of the gospel. Our, our misery for the sake of Christ here, it'll give way to bliss hereafter. Our hardship will be swallowed up by happiness. Our shame will be turned to glory. And suffering will be replaced with the blessedness of all-consuming contentment that will enrapture our hearts in beatitude beyond description. Oh, amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Please hasten that day and grant, Lord, that we would stand with Peter and not only be bold in our confession of Christ, but also by your grace consistent with all the implications that that confession should rightfully have in our lives. Help us, Lord, to live for you and to willingly embrace even a daily death for you. And grant that each of us, Lord, would prefer to live 10,000, prefer to suffer 10,000 deaths before we would ever think of denying your glorious name. May Christ be praised. In his name we ask. Amen.